Um, I did not steal this talk from Catherine, like last week, uh, but uh, we're going to jump into Acts again, so if you guys can pull out your phones or your Bibles, and we're going to be in Acts chapter 8, and uh, we've had to kind of summarize a lot of this because it's a lot, these are long chapters, but um, we talked about Stephen's death last week, he was the first martyr, the first person martyred for his faith, and then after his death, we see this... Uh, persecution, I've got to compete with motorcycles out here, um, persecution scatters many Christians um, all around, except the apostles stay put, but many Christians are scattered because of Stephen's persecution. And what you see in Acts is that persecution led to church growth. So, those, so the people that are doing the persecution, they think that persecuting Christians is going to be like, you know, pouring water on fire, but really it's kind of like pouring gasoline on fire. Persecution leads to um, things really expanding and growing and has the opposite effect of what they're trying to do. So um, many of the Christians go to this area called Judea and Samaria. If you remember back on Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which you probably don't, it's one of the key verses in the whole book. It's where Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So we're seeing Acts 1-8 being fulfilled right in, in Acts chapter 8 where they're actually going to the places that Jesus told them they were going to go, they just didn't know they were going to be going there because of persecution. And uh, so we see how God uses persecution to scatter them. And really you see the same thing happen today, or in modern day. In, back in 1949, uh, in China, uh, when the Communist Party took over China, they expelled over 600 missionaries from their country, which seemed like disaster for Christianity. But almost 300 of them go to Southeast Asia and Japan to um, establish ministries there. And there were still Christians in China that had become believers. And, uh, and so then they're under persecution, but they, they began multiplying and growing as, as many churches throughout China. And today there are over 40 million Christians in China today. So even though it can seem like disaster sometimes when the persecution happens in the church, it really can be like seed being scattered. And that's kind of what happened in the book of Acts. So what we often see, what you and I often see as setbacks, God can use to advance the gospel. I'll summarize for you real quick, verses 4 through 8, um, where Philip, one of the apostles, goes to Samaria, and he's proclaiming Christ, and he's casting out unclean spirits, he's healing people. And it says there was much joy in that city because of, of the ministry happening there. And remember, Samaria was a place that Jew, Jewish people hated Samaritans. They hated Samaria. They would go around Samaria whenever they would um, travel through. Um, it'd be like an Aggie refusing to go through Austin. They travel around on the, the outer loop, right, because they don't want to go through that town. That's kind of how it was for, for Jewish people and Samaria. They want to travel around. They don't want to go through the city. They hate these people. And so now they're sharing the gospel. So Jews are sharing the gospel in Samaria to people that they were sworn to hate. And this is huge. Here's why. Imagine how non-Jews would view this. They're, they're seeing Jewish people witness to Samaritans, and Samaritans come to know Jesus. And they're supposed to be enemies, and now they're in the same churches. They're, they're participating in Christ together, right? And... Uh, so imagine how, non, how non-Jews would see that, how unbelievers would look in and see that and, and, and recognize, wait, something must be real about this because 
these people aren't supposed to be getting along. And they're seeing the, the miracle, not just of miracles of healing people and demons being cast out, those kind of things. They're, they're seeing the miracle of, of relationship being formed with people that are sworn to hate each other. That's a miracle too. And they're seeing that, recognizing this must be real because this shouldn't be happening. Samaria was also a dark place spiritually with lots of demonic possession. And I think what you see there is at times uh, the people that we least expect are the ones that come to know Jesus. And you see that in the book of Acts. You see it here with um, many that are coming to know Christ. Um, so I ask you a question. Are there people that you see as too lost to come to know Christ? Do you see yourself that way? Maybe you're here tonight and you're not yet a believer, a follower of Christ. Do you see yourself as, I, I've done too much, I've gone too far, I've done too many bad things, there's no way Jesus can accept me. And if, hopefully you know this by now, if you don't, I'm going to tell it to you, is that Jesus doesn't call us to be clean before you come to him. He calls you to come to him and then he cleanses you, he transforms you. And so you see that in this book in the book of Acts. So look at Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 13 first. It says, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, when, when they believed... Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So there's this guy named Simon, and he's called a magician. So what's, what is that? What is a magician back in that time? Not the kind we see on TV today, which, by the way, who are the popular magicians today? Give me some names. Like, who are some of the ones that you might know that are maybe on TV right now? Anybody? Chris Angel. Yeah, that's one. Who else? Justin who? Okay. Justin somebody. I couldn't hear the last name. Um, and then you said, somebody said David Blaine. Yes. Uh, a long time ago, it was other people that we won't mention. We'll show how old we are if we do that. But, um, but yeah, so there's, there's those household names. But of course, those guys are illusionists. They're not magicians in the true sense of the word. Like what, Obviously, everything they do has an explanation for it, even though we can't figure out what it is most of the time. But, um, but a magician back then was someone who delved into the demonic, like witchcraft, black magic, as they would say. And this would be like modern-day palm readers, psychics, horoscopes, those kinds of things. Um, and so... There, listen, there is real power in some of those kinds of things. But just because something's powerful doesn't mean it's good. So when you hear about that world, it's like, and somebody might go, yeah, man, my, my aunt or my sister did this and tried this and it like totally worked. It's like, well, yeah, there's like a whole demonic realm that we do believe exists. And it's real. We don't deny that. So, um, but just because something's powerful doesn't mean it's good. Another word for magic in the Bible is the word sorcery. You may have heard that word before. And what's interesting is the, the word sorcery comes from the Greek word pharmakia. Do you know what word we get from pharmakia? Pharmace pharmaceuticals or pharmacy, which is drugs. Let's talk about that for a second. 
because, um, so listen, it's actually a, a, a fact that in, back, in this, back in that day, um, sorcery and magic were often accompanied by drug use, whatever they would use back then for, in that world, um, that sorcery and magic were accompanied by drug use back then, and really has throughout all of history. There are many Christians today that see drug use as no big deal. But I'll tell you, it's linked to the demonic. And you even see that in Scripture, like even in the words that are used to describe these things. Um, many of you may, have, may, you may not know this, I don't know, but my wife would even tell you, and that, that's part of her testament, part of her past is drug use back in high school and college. She would tell you that when she was in that world, that she literally can look back and say, I sensed the demonic when I was in that world. Like literally, physically, I could sense it seeing weird stuff. I mean, she has some crazy stories. People she knew, I mean, all kinds of those, those stories she has. And she would tell anyone, that anyone that is involved in that world, that there is a demonic element to it. And I will say to anybody here, or friends you may know, um, for anybody that's using in that way, um, they're doing exactly what Satan wants. That is right where Satan wants you to be. And so it, it's kind of interesting to get into the debate even with Christians, like, well, we should legalize this, legalize that. It's like, listen, that's not really a debate that I really want to have, but it's, it's interesting when you look at the scriptures, you can see that world, there's a demonic realm to it, and you can't deny that element. So this guy, Simon the magician, has everyone's attention, but this guy, Philip, shows up preaching the gospel, and there are many that repent and come to faith. And uh, I can barely read my words up here. Um, and at first it seems like Simon is a genuine believer because it says he believes. That's what the words say. So he gets baptized. This guy Simon gets baptized and he follows Philip around and he's watching Philip perform miracles. And this guy Simon is realizing that this, this is a whole different power than what he has done in whatever kind of magician thing he's done. So, um, so he's intrigued by this. So I'm going to summarize for you uh, verses 14 to 17, where it says that Peter and John, they hear about all these people coming to know Jesus in Samaria. So Peter and John show up from Jerusalem because they're hearing about these new believers. And they lay hands on these new believers and pray for them. And these new believers receive the Holy Spirit, just like what happened back in the early part of Acts. Now look back, look down at verse 18. It says, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. So earlier it seemed like this guy Simon was a genuine believer, but now we see his true colors. He thinks the Holy Spirit can be purchased. But Peter, Peter invites him to repent, and instead of him doing that and repenting, what does this guy Simon do? Well, he asks them to pray on his behalf. Instead of him praying and repenting to God himself, he says, hey, pray for me that whatever you say bad might happen, that won't happen to me. 
So Simon, he, he wants the power of God, but doesn't want his life changed by God. Whenever someone's truly converted and truly becomes a Christian, it's going to lead to real life change. It's going to lead to transformation. Not perfection, but transformation. Simon wanted to be saved from the penalty of sin, but not so much the power of sin. That was his problem. There are many people, I think, in the church today that do this. We come to Jesus only to escape judgment rather than out of a love for Jesus. We want the benefits of Jesus, but not Jesus himself. One thing I think about as an example of, of you know, how th- this happens for us is um, coming, to, coming to Jesus just to escape judgment or hell is like getting married only to escape singleness. So we've actually had a couple here get married recently. And then, and then Ryan, where's Ryan? Ryan's engaged. He's engaged. But imagine, and Caleb, the Lord is engaged. Um, that sounds weird. Um, he's engaged to the church. Jesus is married to the church. You've got that wrong. Um, but at any rate, so but imagine like if, if, if one of these fiancés, if, if, if the woman in the relationship went to her fiancé and said, you know, why are you marrying me? And the guy was like, I got tired of being single. Eating alone, movies alone, made me feel like a loser. So I, I just thought I'd get married. You know, I don't like being single. I mean, hopefully it's about loving her, right? Like that's why he wants to marry her. If a marriage is built on just escaping singleness, it's not going to last. If a if faith built only on escaping judgment is not going to stand the test of time. Anyone who comes to Jesus just out of escaping judgment, is not, it's not going to stand the test of time. They're just doing it for their own benefit, not because they love Jesus. So consider the state of your own heart. Is your belief just intellectual, or is it a true heart belief and a heart faith? Somebody who truly believes, they're going to see change in their life. Again, not perfection, but you're going to see growth. So the first half of this chapter shows us what a false conversion looks like. The second half shows us what a true conversion looks like. I'll cover this real quickly, and you guys can go to your groups. An angel appears to Philip and tells him where to go next. He comes upon this man from Ethiopia who'd been traveling, and the man had gone to Jerusalem to worship because he knows something about God but doesn't know the full story about Jesus So this guy is sitting in his chariot, reading from Isaiah the prophet, and Philip walks up asking, do you understand what you're reading? And the man says, no, can you help me? It's like, this is like a slow pitch over the plate. It's like, yes, I can help you and tell you all about Jesus. And so in verse 32, look what he says. Now the passage of scripture that this man was reading was this. It's from Isaiah 53. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. You can see how that'd be confusing if you don't know what this is talking about. So this guy says to Philip, who's the prophet talking about? And then Philip tells him all about Jesus. They come upon some water on their journey, and the guy says, can you baptize me? And he gets baptized right there on the spot. They didn't have a nice thing like this. They had like probably a mud puddle, and he baptized him. So here's why this is so significant. 
even though these apostles are performing miracles and it's amazing, there is no greater miracle than someone coming to know Jesus. And you see this true conversion happen with this um, Ethiopian in the story. Secondly, God has already been at work in this man's life, kind of tilling up the soil of this man's heart. And he'd been stirring in this man's heart already. He'd gone to Jerusalem to worship, but he didn't quite understand everything yet. And I think some of you all are in a similar situation. You don't understand everything yet, but God's been working in your heart, stirring in your heart, drawing you to the church or drawing you to other believers to ask questions and all those kind of things. And God is pursuing you. That's why you're here tonight. And listen, you don't have to understand everything about him to repent and place your faith and trust in him. There are many things that they have to, I got to understand every single question and every single doubt before I can truly put my faith and trust. That's not true. Going back to the marriage analogy, there is not one couple who fully understands their spouse when they marry them. They spend a lifetime learning and growing, and they still don't fully understand them. So how much more true that's going to be of God? You will not fully understand everything about God before you come into a relationship with him. But you can still start a relationship with him, and you should. And so this whole chapter is about how God uses suffering and persecution to scatter people so they'll scatter the gospel. But it's also we see Philip, this man who's willing to share his faith to a crowd. And even after the defeat, the, the seeming defeat of this false believer, Simon, um, he's still willing to keep on sharing his faith, and he does with this man on this road. And that man truly becomes a believer because of Simon's witness for him. So um, what I'm going to ask you guys to do is you're going to go to your groups. And um, I've, for the leaders, I've got the sheets over there on that cardboard box thing, if you don't have it on your phone, um, for discussion. And I think you guys know where to go. you all been kind of picking your spots. So um, you guys can do your breakouts. Take your chairs with you if you like.